Hello, my name is Jeannie Poole. I am the Editor-in-Chief of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. Today I will be reviewing the eight articles that are being published in our April issue. The title of the first paper is The Therapeutic Benefit of Upgrade to Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy in Patients with Pacing-Induced Cardiomyopathy by Dr. Robert Kirley and colleagues. In this study, the authors look at predictors of improvement following upgrade to CRT from a pacemaker in 43 patients between 2011 and 2021 considered to have pacing-induced cardiomyopathy. This was defined as a decrease in the left ventricular ejection fraction following pacemaker implantation. All patients were included that met these criteria and who paced at least 20% of the time and, after other causes of decreased LVEF were ruled out. The study was conducted at the Cork University Hospital in Ireland. The authors identified that the LVEF significantly improved from an average of 28.7% pre-upgrade to 44.3% post-CRT upgrade, which was a significant finding. 37 of the 43 patients were considered to have severe left ventricular function, less than 35%, and of those, 34 of the patients improved to an LVEF greater than 35%, and 13 patients to an LVEF greater than 50%. An additional finding is that the echo-determined LVED decreased from an average of 5.9 centimeters to 5.4 centimeters, and this was also a significant finding. Complications in this study were low, and one out of every four required venoplasty. Among the entire cohort, three, or 7% of the patients, had a sustained ventricular arrhythmia following upgrade, and this occurred all in the patients with severe left ventricular dysfunction. In multivariate analysis, only ACE and ARB medications were associated with improved left ventricular ejection fraction improvement. The authors concluded that their study provides evidence for the benefit of CRT upgrade in the management of patients with pacemaker-induced cardiomyopathy. The next paper is titled, Transvenous Lead Extractions in a Single High-Volume Center Over a 24-Year Period, High Success Rate and Low Complication Rate by Dr. Thomas Morgan Knudsen and colleagues. This study reports on the 24-year lead extraction experience from Oslo University Hospital in Norway from 1997 to 2020. During this time, the team identified 1,642 patients who had one or more attempted leads extracted, some patients being represented with more than one procedure. The approach used were, for most patients, the single-sheath dilation technique using snaring or mechanical rotational sheaths when needed. This is an approach that was promoted by Dr. Maria Bongiorni from Pisa, Italy. The venous axis could be subclavian, cephalic, or via the jugular vein. Transesophageal echocardiography was not routinely used and used only in selected cases. Those were generally in suspected lead or valve-related endocarditis, not obvious from the transthoracic echocardiogram. Most of the extractions were performed using local anesthesia with sedation and not general anesthesia, and overall only 8% of the patients required general anesthesia. A CT surgeon was available and could be in the procedure room for high-risk cases. The population was similar to other reports with a median age of 65 and a median dwell time of the leads of 5 years. Clinical success was achieved in 1,739 procedures, or 97.7% of all procedures, and complete technical success in 2,841 leads, which is 95.8%. Extraction failed in only 44 leads, or 2.2% of the patients. Major complications occurred in 1.3% of the cases. There was one death considered to be directly related to the procedure. Two patients with sepsis died within 24 hours of the procedure, and importantly, there were no venocaval tears. The median procedural time was 70 minutes. Younger age, female sex, dwell time of the oldest lead, 
and use of steel sheaths versus polypropylene and longer x-ray time were all associated with procedural failure in multivariate analysis. The authors conclude that single sheath elite extractions utilized in snaring or mechanical rotation sheaths were effective and safe in their high volume center as performed by experienced operators. The title of the next study is Association of Late Gadolinium Enhancement in Cardiac Magnetic Resonance with Mortality, Ventricular Arrhythmias, and Heart Failure in Patients with Non-Ischemic Cardiomyopathy, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Dr. Muhammad Al-Sadawi and colleagues at Stony Brook Heart Institution. This is a meta-analysis of studies reporting on LGE on cardiac magnetic resonance in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy patients and the relationship to the outcomes of mortality, VAs, and sudden cardiac death and heart failure outcomes. Additional outcomes were improvement in LVEF and heart transplantation referral. The authors identified 46 studies and 10,548 non-ischemic cardiomyopathy patients. 56% of those patients had no LGE on CMR and 44% did have LGE. The mean follow-up was three years with a range of 13 to 71 months. LGE was associated with increased mortality with an odds ratio of 2.9 and ventricular arrhythmias or sudden death with an odds ratio of 4.6. These were all significant findings. LGE was also associated with an increased risk of heart failure hospitalization with an odds ratio of 3.4, referral for transplantation with an odds ratio of 5.1, and decreased improvement of LVEF to greater than 35%, odds ratio of 0.2. The authors conclude that LGE in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy patients is associated with increased mortality, ventricular arrhythmias, and sudden death, heart failure hospitalization, and heart transplantation referral, over the long-term follow-up. The authors go on to suggest that given the competing risks of mortality and heart failure progression, prospective randomized controlled trials should determine if LGE is useful for guiding prophylactic implantable cardioverter defibrillator placement in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy patients. The next paper is called Major Drivers of Healthcare System Costs and Cost Variability for Routine Atrial Fibrillation Ablation by Dr. Brian Zenger and colleagues from the University of Utah. Background for this study is that while catheter ablation is effective for atrial fibrillation, it incurs significant financial costs to payers. So the authors therefore sought to measure direct inflation and adjusted costs of uncomplicated routine AF ablation. The data were extracted from the University of Utah Health Value Driven Outcome System and included the components of direct and indirect costs for routine AF ablation procedures, the variability of those costs, and the main factors that drive ablation cost variability. Direct costs were defined as those that were incurred by pharmacy, disposable supplies, patient labs, implants, and other service categories, which were primarily anesthesia support. Indirect costs were defined as those related to imaging, the facility, and the EP lab management categories. The authors identified 910 patients who underwent 1,060 outpatient ablations between January 1, 2013 to December 31, 2020. The primary results found that disposable supplies accounted for the largest component of the cost, or 44.8%, and that anesthesia support accounted for 30.4%, followed by facility costs at 16.1%. The remainder, approximately 15%, was due to pharmacy, imaging, and implant costs, respectively. Overall, direct costs were greater than indirect costs, 82.5% versus 17.7%. On multivariable regression, the authors found that the procedure operator was the primary factor associated with AF ablation overall cost, with up to a 12% variance in costs between the operators. 
The author's key points were first, that direct costs, including electrophysiology lab supply costs and other services with anesthesia, make up the bulk of healthcare system atrial fibrillation ablation costs. Second, the cost variability, even in routine outpatient atrial fibrillation ablation procedures, is large. And then finally, that procedure operator was the main factor associated with cost variability, yielding a 12% difference in atrial fibrillation ablation costs between the least and most expensive operators. The next study is titled Catheter Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation in Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, a Proportional Meta-Analysis and Systematic Review of Single-Arm Studies by Dr. Azka Latif. This meta-analysis study examines clinical outcomes in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients who undergo AF ablation. The authors used incidence rate estimates from the individual studies to perform logic transformation to calculate the weighted summary proportion under the random effect model. 19 studies met the inclusion criteria and included 1,183 patients. In 39% of the patients, a single ablation was successful. 34% had another ablation. Of all the patients, 41% were treated with antiarrhythmic drugs after the ablation. Patients who were considered to have a successful AF ablation improved their NYHA class by a mean of one class. The authors conclude that although many HCM patients undergoing catheter ablation for AF may require redo ablations and antiarrhythmic drug therapy to prevent AF recurrence, this updated analysis with significantly more patients continues to suggest that AF ablation in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy appears safe and is associated with improvement in symptoms. The authors also suggest that in the future, randomized clinical trials with longer follow-up durations should be conducted to establish higher quality evidence to better inform patient selection, procedural complications, and long-term outcomes associated with catheter ablation for AF in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The next study is a very interesting report titled SGK1 Inhibition Attenuated the Action Potential Duration in Patient and Genotype-Specific Reengineered Heart Cells with Congenital Long QT Syndrome by Dr. Mangio Kim, Dr. Michael Ackerman, and others. The study reports the efficacy results of a novel selective SCK1 inhibitor. That acronym stands for Serum and Glucocorticoid Regulated Kinase 1. This drug is proposed as a novel agent for long QT syndrome, and the study used very detailed methodology, which you can identify by accessing the paper. The basics of the study are that the authors compared the SCK1 inhibitor to the efficacy of mexilatine in induced pluripotent stem cells derived cardiomyocyte models of long QT. The efficacy outcome measure was an action potential duration at 90% repolarization, or APD90, shortening in two of the SCN5A variants, one KCNH2 and one KCNQ1 variant respectively, using Fluovolt. The primary findings are that inhibiting the SGK1 effectively shortens the action potential duration in human-induced pluripotent stem cells-derived cardiomyocyte models of the three major LQTS genotypes. The authors conclude that these are impactful data that describe a first-in-class therapy using SGK1 inhibitors as a novel therapy for LQTS patients. These results support a human trial of this drug in LQT patients. That trial is currently in the works to launch sometime this year or early next year. The next paper is Hybrid Epicardial and Endocardial Sinus Node Sparing Ablation Therapy for Inappropriate Sinus Tachycardia. Rational and Design of the Multicenter Heal IST IDE Trial by Dr. Carlo de Asmundus and colleagues. 
The authors note that IST is often disabling and that drugs are not broadly effective. Sinusoidal catheter ablation is an approach that has not been very effective either, sometimes ending up with the need for a pacemaker and a high recurrence rate. The HEAL IST trial is planned as a prospective multicenter pivotal single-arm trial. The investigators plan to enroll up to 142 drug refractory subjects in up to 40 centers. The trial design is a Bayesian adaptive design. Primary safety outcome is measured at 30 days post-procedure, and the primary efficacy endpoint is freedom from IST at 12 months. The definition of freedom from IST is a mean heart rate of less than 90 beats per minute or a 15% or greater reduction in the mean heart rate from baseline at 24 hours. The authors note that the HEAL IST trial is the first multicenter trial evaluating hybrid IST ablation in patients with symptomatic IST who are refractory or intolerant to drugs. The final paper is called Risk Stratification for Maternal Atrial Ventricular Nodal Reentrant Tachycardia During Pregnancy. This is a case report and literature review. In this paper, the authors describe a case of ADNRT in a pregnant woman and the therapy that was given. The authors support this discussion with a literature search of 24 women with maternal AVNRT looking at therapies and efficacies. The authors summarize that maternal AVNRT during pregnancy is associated with good maternal and fetal outcomes. They also discuss the use of zero fluoroscopy ablation as an option during pregnancy. All right, that sums up the articles for the April 2023 HRO2 issue. Thanks so much for tuning in, and please, again, come back on this podcast station for the summary of the May 2023 articles next month.